0: Hello, and welcome back to From My Mom's Basement. I'm your host, David Chamberlain, and this is episode 35 of the podcast, titled Staying the Night in a Spring Hill Suites in Kingman, Arizona. Thank you all again for listening. The road to Kingman, Arizona, specifically I-40, is winding. You follow the serpentine curves of the highway through orange, dusty tracts of high desert, which, once around Flagstaff, becomes covered in tall pines and mountainous. It looks like Afghanistan. By the time you reach Kingman, the pines recede and you find yourself in a big valley, a classic southwestern bowl of dust and scrub oak. Cliffs of sandstone hang on the perimeter of the city, hulking things that plunge out of the earth at steep angles, like giant ships half-sunk. I rolled in past these cliffs around 4 or 4.30 in the afternoon, late November. The sun, even in this Arizonan desert, was weak and sad. It seemed sick. I'd been driving for close to seven hours and was happy to finally put my U-Haul to rest. I sped up the off-ramp and came to a sprawling intersection where a network of wide, two-lane streets crisscrossed and the town of Kingman was opened up to me. Kingman, as far as my tastes are concerned, is a great town. No frills, no funny business, it's earnest and sincere. Unlike so many western towns that spruce up an old-fashioned boulevard and stuff it with souvenir shops with names like Bone and Pine, which sell low-quality t-shirts and stickers with irreverent sayings that really pander to baby-boomer women who just can't seem to believe a sticker would say such gosh-darned inappropriate things like bitch and fuck, and whose carbon copies you can find anywhere from Bisbee to Coeur d'Alene, Kingman caters to no one but its own citizenry. Because of this, Kingman is ugly and unconcerned with aesthetic infrastructure, but it's also authentic. It's a real-deal western town full of industrial warehouses, metal-sided carports, and abandoned dirt lots with fossilized Chevys surrounded by rattling chain-link fences. Stray dogs lope up and down the streets. There are no sidewalks. The people are strange and dress poorly and have a taut, leather-like appearance that only a lifetime spent in the Arizona sun can render. Forget Taos or Moab or Jackson Hole, if you want to see the true west, go to Kingman. The only familiar touchstone Kingman can offer a city slicker like me would be its hospitality industry, namely the Spring Hill Suites just off the main thoroughfare of the city. There was also a Ramada, a Hampton Inn, and an Embassy Suites, all of which were sad-looking and faded the eggshell white of a boat that's been sitting in a marina for too long. Not the Spring Hill, though, no sir. Its stucco and faux river stone facade looked brand new, as if it had been dropped in Kingman by some cosmic crane only moments before I arrived. Spring Hill Suites, for those of you who don't know, is a hotel chain under the umbrella of the great blue-chip hotel giant, Marriott. Marriott boasts 30 different subsidiary hotel brands, including, but not limited to, Fairfield, Sheraton, St. Regis, Four Points by Sheraton, Westin, Town Place Suites, Gaylord Hotels, Courtyard, JW Marriott, Residence Inn, Aloft Hotels, Moxie Hotels, Delta Hotels, W Hotels, Marriott Vacation Club, and, interestingly enough, the big, bad, most famous hotel brand in the biz, the Ritz-Carlton. Each of these brands assumes a different set of characteristics to cater to a specific demo-slash-income level. You go to a J. Willard or a Ritz-Carlton, and you're going to find a full-service hotel that blows the doors off any hotel experience you've had before. Whereas, say, a residence inn is going to be something more like a low-scale apartment. You get a full kitchen and dining table, but the carpet is rough and stained in the corners and the light fixtures are ugly. Spring Hill is the perfect Goldilocks of hotels, exactly middle-middle class. You don't have to worry about a valet harassing you when you roll up, but you still get a full continental breakfast and crisp, clean sheets. It was, as I said, late afternoon when I arrived at the Spring Hill in Kingman, and as I swung my unwieldy U-Haul into the parking lot, I discovered that there was only one other car in the lot, a silver Toyota RAV4, outside of which stood a middle-aged couple and their son with Down syndrome. They must have been driving to the Grand Canyon, or maybe down to Vegas, or were driving back to California from either of those places. At any rate, they were in the midst of a very long drive, and their attitudes towards each other reflected this. Hopping out of my truck and walking to the lobby, I couldn't help but notice the kid with downs had his hand right up his butt crack. I mean, was really digging deep in there, and the way his parents yelled at him made me think it definitely wasn't the first time he dug for dingleberries that day. As I walked past them, the parents looked up at me with knowing expressions, as if to say, Yep, you know the drill, he's at it again but I definitely didn't know the drill. The lobby of the Spring Hill was dark and cavernous. The windows, I'm guessing due to the punishing Arizona sunlight, were tinted to an extreme degree, making the world outside look gray and dreary. And the place was empty. It felt like a restaurant at closing time and had the exact cleanliness of an upscale retail store, like a Banana Republic. Continental breakfast tables receded into a long, dark, shadow-filled corridor, chairs stacked on their faces. Flat-screen TVs droned on for no one, football, cable news, etc., glowing in the dark. The front desk was a big, donut-shaped thing made to give off a techno-futurist vibe like an information desk at a university library. The hotel clerk, the only soul in the lobby, leaned against the inner rim of this donut doing absolutely doggone nothing. If I hadn't shown up, he probably would have gone Jack Torrance by the end of the night. The clerk was handsome, wore a full beard, and greeted me like a very normal person. But as we initiated check-in procedures, I noticed he had a very slight but dynamic lazy eye, which, by degrees, would become lazier and lazier, drifting to the very corner of his eye until, by some silent exertion, something like clenching his teeth and flaring his nostrils, he swung his eye back to its center mark. The clerk's name was Logan, and later that night I would find him sitting alone in the dark lobby, a silhouette amongst the empty tables, his head resting in his palms, watching one of the flat-screen TVs a tableau with all the sadness and breadth of meaning of an Edward Hopper painting. The elevators were somehow, in a hotel that looked deserted, a vibrant intersection of people. They didn't have their own mezzanine, as some elevator banks do in larger hotels, but instead a small nook off the lobby. It was in this nook that I met Debbie. Rounding the corner to the elevators, I found the hotel's one and only housekeeper dancing. I'm talking arms in the air, lower lip biting, butt gyrating, soft moaning kind of dancing. The bright horns of Macklemore's rap hit, Thrift Shop, blasted fuzzily from her cell phone. A song not nearly old enough to be a classic, and definitely not new enough to be on any top 40 charts, but also not obscure enough to represent Debbie's own personalized tastes, but just generic and commercial enough to be, when seeing an old hotel housekeeper dancing to it. Sad. Debbie had a face that could be described as skull-like her white, sun-aged skin wrapped tightly around her high cheekbones and hollow cheeks, leather shrink wrap. Her lips were curled inward over missing teeth. If she weren't in a spiffy, all-black Marriott uniform and was instead in typical western street clothes, i.e. a pink hoodie, faded boot-cut jeans, and sketchers, I'd have no reason to believe she were anything other than a meth addict. As I scooched toward the elevator doors, luggage in hand, trying desperately to avoid any scenario where I'd have to interact with this dancing lady, my worst fears were realized. Debbie, her eyes being fully and intensely shut, sidestepped, pirouetted, and bumped right into me. I'm not a big dude, but her frail body ricocheted off me like a sickly child's. She turned, gasped, and covered her mouth in surprise, an action done not out of instinct but out of a weird performative impulse, like a kid who puts her hand to her forehead when pretending to faint and then said, Sorry, I'm so sorry. Uh, This is kind of my world. I I never expect to see anyone here. That was kind of a weird thing to say. Mind you, I wasn't at any employee elevator. I was smack dab in the middle of the hotel lobby. So her apology raised a number of Twilight Zone-esque red flags, like, what did she mean she didn't expect to see anyone here? Was she saying that she worked in a hotel that never housed any occupants? Beyond this, I started to think about the bizarre implications of a woman whose job it is to clean rooms which haven't been soiled by anyone in the first place. It sounded like the life of someone in a bad, absurdist play. A haggard woman who must clean already clean things. But this wasn't the life of a fictional woman. This was Debbie's actual life life. Standing shoulder to shoulder, waiting for the elevator to arrive, Debbie and I were forced to remain together after our awkward run-in. It was painful, at least for me. Debbie's embarrassment was transient, and she started to sing along with Macklemore as we waited. She never turned off the music or even lowered the volume. But that wasn't even the weirdest interaction I had at the elevators. Later in the evening, walking back from the Spring Hills gym, an experience all chronicle hereafter, I turned the corner to find a large, homely woman struggling to wrangle two calcutrant canines. They were these wolf-sized German shepherds that had no respect for their owner whatsoever. Based on the absent bovine-like expression on the woman's face, and the fact that she wasn't blind, and the fact that Marriott's typically disallow pets on premises, I knew that her shepherds must be emotional support animals. This poor disturbed lady, who ostensibly needed the affection of these dogs to keep from slitting her wrists, which in my mind is essentially the adult equivalent of carrying around a stuffed animal, except these stuffed animals can run and bite and make loud noises and shit couldn't even win the support from the very things that were trained specifically to render it to her. The dogs jumped violently and snapped at her heels and were generally very scary. I stood there, watching this heavy-set woman with purple highlights try to contain her pups like a deep-sea fisherman trying to reel in a marlin and knew it was only a matter of time before something really bad happened. She called their names, which were just awful, awful names like Kalilah and Amara, in an attempt to calm them. It didn't work. Periodically, she looked at me with an exhausted smile as if inviting me to initiate some convo about how cute her sweet puppies were, or maybe to actually assist in pacifying the dogs, which I had absolutely zero inclination to do. By the time the elevator arrived, the dogs were reaching a critical level of antagonism. The bow was about to break. The elevator door opened and a sweet-looking older dude, an employee of the hotel, peeked his head out and smiled at the yapping dogs. "Oh, you got your hands full," he said, stepping out of the way and holding the elevator door open. The lady smiled and as she pulled her dogs towards the elevator, lost her grip on one of the shepherds. Whether it was Kalila or Amara, I can't be sure, but at any rate the shepherd reindeer jumped out of the lady's hands and then once it knew it was free, trotted away from its owner with the quiet intention of an actor exiting stage. The three humans stood dumb and watched as the dog walked into the lobby. Purple hair looked at me and then at the hotel employee and, without a word, took off after her loose dog. It was clear that the situation was going to balloon into something frightening and beyond anyone's capacity to control, so I ran into the elevator without hesitation, eager to get upstairs before the dog started a rampage. The Marriott employee stepped back onto the elevator with me, which I didn't immediately assess as strange simply because he worked at the hotel and maybe had other reasons to ride the elevator than merely conveyance. He asked what floor I was going to and punched in the number like a real old-fashioned elevator operator. But as I was stepping off the elevator, I noticed something kind of bone-chilling. The man's black polo, which I assumed had a monogrammed Marriott logo like the other employees actually belonged to some company with a name like Peterson Real Estate. So, what was at first a very kind gesture became very creepy when I realized this dude was just like riding the elevator up and down and asking what floor people were going to. He even told me to have a nice day. It was the stairs, and the stairs only, from then on. But even avoiding the elevators couldn't keep me safe from Debbie. Somehow, for some reason, that afternoon Debbie decided to tend to the rooms on either side of my own. I don't think this was a coincidence. About 20 minutes after I got to my room, I heard the medieval clank and squeak of her cart roll up beside my door, followed by the knocking of her bony knuckles against the doors adjacent to mine, and then her voice, call out, Housekeeping! This proclamation was frightening on a number of levels. Her voice was weird and warbly, like what an old ship's foghorn might sound like. But beyond this, the tone she used wasn't interrogative, but declarative as if she were going to clean your room with or without your consent. But the most frightening part of her calls was that, according to her own words, there really wasn't anyone staying in the hotel, so she was just shouting housekeeping to rooms which she knew to be empty and dark. Kind of scary. Later, when I was heading to the gym, I found Debbie standing right outside my door, fiddling with her cart like a student pretending to be busy. I made eye contact with her and quickly looked away, shocked by her manic eyes. She mumbled something under her breath, which was completely indiscernible, but in retrospect I think was just a simple, hey, how are you? The greeting came out so quiet that I didn't deign it with a response. I seriously wasn't sure if she was talking to me or to herself, which could have definitely been the case. As I walked away, I heard her sigh in frustration and then mumble some more, this time very angrily. I'm pretty sure she thought I spurned her salutation which really made me kind of wary because she seemed like the type of person to kill someone for doing anything that she deemed disrespectful, no matter how small or trivial. I was looking over my shoulder the rest of my stay. So, the gym was about the size of a conference room and boasted the kind of equipment you'd find in your friend's unfinished basement. It had two treadmills, a sad dumbbell rack, and a padded bench. The heaviest weight in there was a single 45-pound dumbbell whose rubber nodes were chipped and pockmarked as if a dog had chewed on them. Yet the walls were covered in literature explaining the various dangers involved in lifting heavy weights and how to avoid injury, as if the Spring Hill Suites were about to host a strongman competition. But perhaps the strangest thing about the gym was this row of bank teller windows running the length of the western wall, which looked directly into the pool area. It's my guess that these windows were installed so fitness-minded parents could supervise their children from within the gym. But when you aren't a parent and just a single adult male, and a group of young women in criminally small bikinis comes prancing onto the pool deck, the windows suddenly feel voyeuristic and intrusive and creepy, and you suddenly feel evil and resent the windows for putting you in such an awkward position, and you make absurd pains to avoid looking through the windows, which really puts a hamper on your workout routine. This voyeurism can work both ways, however. Like when a gaggle of postmenopausal women who've definitely snuck wine into their water bottles, hobble into the pool area wearing knit shawls over their collapsing bodies, and sit down beside the windows and look at you with old yellow smiles and seemingly lose their shit whenever you do pull-ups. You're no longer a voyeur, but an exhibitionist. It's a lose-lose situation if there ever were one. I cut my workout short. My hotel room itself was nice and typical, and I don't think I really need to describe it here in detail. It was clean and the carpets were taut and coarse like the flooring of an elementary school, and the A.C. was thunderous and pumped out arctic-level cold air. It was nice and, like I always do when I stay in hotels, I took everything for granted. The clean towels, the crisp sheets, the spotless toilet, the perfectly functioning shower, the varying power and angle of the many light sources, and the general aura of cleanliness and order. This is the way hotel rooms are supposed to be. This is their function. But when I snuck out the side door of the hotel the next morning, making pains to avoid Debbie or the dog lady, I felt that unique sense of dread I always do when leaving a hotel. A kind of mellow, deep-seated sadness that comes on when I realize that that sweet room I just stayed in was just a fantasy. That I do not live in a climate-controlled room with a king-sized bed and a subway-tiled shower with a rainwater showerhead, and the only thing keeping my life clean and orderly and safe is me. I was able to get to my U-Haul without incident and made it to L.A. by the early afternoon. I still think about Debbie sometimes, though, and her dry hands cleaning all of those empty, unsoiled rooms. Thank you all for listening. That was episode 35 of the podcast titled Staying the Night in a Spring Hill Suites in Kingman, Arizona. Written, edited, produced, and narrated by myself, with the music being by Kevin McLeod. Thank you all again.